Now, uh, Alan de Baton is back on the line. His new book is A Therapeutic Journey. You are there, Alan. Yes, I am. Thank you so much. <laughs> OK. Uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, so just remind our listeners about the School of Life. Yes, it's an organisation that broadly helps people with their emotional, mental well-being. We hear a lot about um, the problems that people have. Um, and, you know, it's growing ever more necessary. And so we offer a therapy service. We give people advice on um, just navigating the you know, the ups and downs of life, which we all go through, and the aim is, yeah, a, a home for the mind. Okay. As, um, I, I'm wondering, historically, did humankind suffer from mental illness back in the day when we were living in groups of 120 and foraging and we didn't have any of the modernity that we have now? Well, you know, it's one of those kind of paradoxes that while we've made material life so much more comfortable for ourselves, undoubtedly, we all feel that there's something going on in the psychological space which has actually grown more difficult. And, uh, you know, it's kind of an irony. All that hard work that we've been putting to creating a, a wealthier, more secure society seems to have a kind of horrible kickback. Now, part of it is, is expectations, of course. You know, our ancestors did not expect to be happy. They expected to survive. Mm. Nowadays, we have extremely high expectations of ourselves. And so we're slightly the prisoner of these kind of fantasies about what life should be like. But, you know, for many people, it can't necessarily be that way. All of us are kind of um, destined to suffer all kinds of reversals. And so a little bit of space for for, for the downside seems to be something that we've um, forgotten how to do. How did mankind as a race develop these uh, unrealistic expectations? I think it really comes from a kind of scientific worldview that if there's a problem, you can fix it. There's a machine that can fix it. But the human animal is, you know, the, the most complicated machine in the universe. And we're, we're still many centuries, many millennia away from properly understanding how we work. Mm. So all of us are kind of forced to, to navigate life. And, you know, the, the bit of our minds that we actually understand all the time, we're doing things that we don't quite understand. I mean, think of dreaming. You know, half of our life is spent unconscious, and of that part, our life through our, our minds throw up images, scenarios, stories we just can't make head or tail of. So we are hugely mysterious to ourselves, and so much of what we do just you know we don't understand why we're drawn to this person rather than that one. Um, why why are we suddenly anxious or suddenly depressed? We can't make sense of it, and mm. that's why we need all the help we can get to try and interpret ourselves. Well, well, just a couple of those things, like, and it's, it's come up over and over again. I think we spoke four years ago, and in those four years, the word trauma has been mentioned so often. It, it just has mushroomed into existence. Um, and it, it's hugely important, isn't it? Particularly, you know, it's, it's our childhood and how it affects us as adults. Yes. I mean, you know, it's one of those, frankly, really annoying things. We are madly vulnerable to what happened to us in our childhoods. It's, it's almost humiliating, if you like. You know, you could be 40, 50, 60, and still determined by things that were happening when you were four, five, six. I mean, in a way, you know, if you were explaining the situation to a Martian, it would be embarrassing. It would be ridiculous. But that is, in fact, our lot. And I think the best way to, to accept how we're, how we're built is, is to you know, understand it and come to terms with it rather than kick against it. It does seem that we are very vulnerable to failures of what we might call love. You know, children who have not been loved correctly, properly, um, have, you know, consequences. These things have consequences in adult life. And 
whenever we see someone doing a strange thing, being addicted to substances of one kind or another, or, um, you know, messing up relationships or sabotaging their workplace or something, and we think, why are they doing that? Almost always the clue lies in childhood. Something would have occurred in their past, which means that they are kind of almost determined to, um, to bring about, you know, painful consequences for themselves. And it's, you know, it's, it's deeply regrettable. But the good news is we can try and unplug these patterns once we understand them, once we can see them more clearly. And, um, you know, that's what the whole business of psychotherapy is really all about. And that's, you know, that's been another huge thing in the last decade or so to really come on people's radars as something that you know, could help your quality of life. Hmm. You say, and you might explain this to us, you say in the book, our memories are what allow us to forget. Yes. I mean, sometimes what what happens is you you have an image of what happened to you in your childhood. You know, your parents tell you, um, you know, you were a happy child or or you were a shy child or whatever. And these these stories about what we are like uh, have enormous power. And it can take a hugely long time to kind of step back and go, hang on a minute, what what really was my past like? And to kind of to drill beneath the story we think we know, to really examine, you know, what was dad like? What was mum like? Mm. Um, we, we, we sometimes navigate with these kind of rigid accounts. And it really pays to just take a step back and, and, and try and figure out what really happened. Uh, there, there's a lot of positive in the negatives in the book, if that makes sense. Like you, you say... Uh, that there's no such thing as a fully sane, fully mature human being, uh, and that may sound like a positive, but it's a, or sound like a negative, but it's a positive because we're all in this together. We're all flawed. That's right. I mean, we suffer hugely from the assumption that it is normal to be normal. Well, it isn't. Um, you know, we are we are all under huge pressures of one kind or another. I mean, all of us have come from complicated stories, and and when you're trying to understand people, always ask yourself. You know, what did this person need to do to get on in the world, in the habitat, in the family that they grew up in? What did they need to do to kind of please the people around them? And, you know, there are people who, let's say, need to fail because that was important to their parents. I know that sounds weird, but sometimes parents demand failure. Sometimes parents demand acute success. Sometimes parents demand that a kid is constantly funny or constantly, you know, takes second place to a sibling or whatever. So there's often um, demands that, that families of origin make that really explain what people are doing in, in later life. And the more you can understand why you're doing that thing, because all of us have a thing that we do, you know, that we don't quite understand. Like, why do I get angry about this thing? Or why, does, why do I suddenly get depressed at this moment, etc.? And there's always a logic, mm. but it's a logic that's kind of hidden from us because as I say, you know, 90% of our minds is, is foreign yeah. to us. We, we, we are strangers in our own house. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds to me, which is slightly depressing, uh, that there's a, a cycle of dysfunction. And, and how do we possibly break that cycle if, if we are messed up by our parents and we go on to bring our neurosis and mess up our children? And that, 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 that. Um, look, it, it is hugely important. And sometimes people say things like, oh, going to therapy or thinking about your life, it's a bit self-indulgent. Well, you know, a really big counter-argument is if you take time to explore your own patterns and what you're up to, you will be helping not just yourself, but you'll be helping literally everyone around you, your colleagues, uh, your your partners, your children, and then in turn, their children. Because we are, as you say, stuck often in 
intergenerational cycles. Yes. You know, one person, you know, the grandfather's drinking a lot so uh, and, and violent. And then that means that the kid uh, becomes shy and repressed. And then that means that their child becomes, you know, blah, blah, and on and on it goes. We react to the reaction to the reaction of, of something. And I think, look, the good news is we are getting more demanding in a good way. Um, we're, we're kind of refusing the old compromises of life. We, we can actually become happier than we have been. And it's a little bit like I say in the book, you know, in the 19th century, when, when bacteria were first discovered, there was astonishment that something invisible could pollute a water supply and, and kill a whole city. And you mm -hmm. couldn't even see it. You know, and people thought it's, it's not possible. Well, we're, we're doing the same thing now with psychology. We're learning that there are near invisible, as it were, in inverted commas, bacteria that, that are transmitted in families, between families, between generations. And if we learn to spot them, then these so-called small things can unlock an enormous uplift in, in all of our potential. So it's a, it's a positive, you know, we're in a good place, but it can seem, as you say, that there's trauma everywhere. Well, there's always been trauma, but we're now growing sensitive to it, like a, like a sort of radio frequency that's been tuned to a certain noise that was always there. Mm. Uh, there's a paradox as well, in, in, uh, and I'll try and articulate this as well as I can, um, that... We need to appreciate how insignificant we are before we can appreciate what's significant, <laughs> which, which seems to be a paradox because you, you have that thing, you know, perspective. The Earth was formed 4.543 billion years ago. Life on Earth started 3.77 billion years ago. And you go on, uh, first dinosaurs, 243 million years ago. Agriculture started 10,000 years ago. The Roman Empire was at its height 1,920 years ago. The first powered flight took place 120 years ago. My last moment of despair was five days ago. So in the scheme of things, it's, it's, it's minuscule, nothing. Yes, that's right. And, you know, one of the kind of, one of the difficulties of being human is that we congenitally lose perspective. I mean, anyone who's ever looked after a small child, what happens to a small child after about 7 p.m.? It radically loses perspective. You know, it needs to go to bed. And if, you know, if it's teddy bear loses its eye at that moment, you know, there'll be whales in the house. And now we adults are not so different. We are constantly forgetting to properly calibrate events against a true assessment of what is important and what is necessary. And, you know, one of the reasons why we need other people is that we help to calibrate each other. You know, that's what people do. If you see kind of couples, a good functioning couple, you know, they don't just say, oh, you know, don't go out wearing those purple trousers or, or you know, those, those, that strange jacket or whatever. But they're also constantly saying, you know, I think you're shouting a little bit or you're a little overexcited or you've lost perspective on this issue. And so we constantly need that, that readjustment because we're so bad. And, you know, luckily, nature, the divine, whatever, you know, whatever your belief system is, has created a wonderful reminder of perspective. And that is the night sky. Anytime you're in danger of losing perspective and it's a clear night, just look up for five minutes and you have a, a philosophy lesson written in the stars. Because this is not just a kind of a, a thing for astronomers. It's for everyone who is ever in danger of forgetting what matters and the proper scale of things in the wider picture. And as I say, every night the moon comes out to give us a little bit of a philosophy lesson and just recalibrate our own priorities. But, this, but we are all important to ourselves. I, I don't know how you lose that. Yes, I mean, look, we're, you know, and this is where literally the, the, the only solution is laughter because, right. um, you know, a, stu a, stubbed, a stubbed toe, a stubbed toe is literally more important to the person whose toe it is than, you know, an earthquake a thousand miles yes. away that is, you know, ma made off with a whole city. Um, so we are, 
you know, inherently egocentric, but, but it is also kind of an amazing part of our minds that despite our reliance, our, our kind of inbuilt egoism, we are capable sometimes of loosening ourselves from our own egos. And we are able to, you know, the, the technical word is transcendence. You're able to have a kind of transcendent moment where even though you are you, you can actually enter into the minds of other people, even other things. Uh. You can inhabit, you know, the universe, the clouds, the trees, the moon, you know, we, we, can, we can slip out of ourselves at times. But these are rare moments. Most of the time we're, we're stuck pretty solidly with our own psyches. Uh, love is important and not of the romantic kind. Um, very, look, it's, it's, it's very important. It's what, it's what keeps us going. What do we mean by love? Essentially being understood. The most romantic thing that anyone can ever propose ultimately is a sense that another person understands what it is like to be you, right. particularly the painful aspects of being you. You know, we, we have this, such a, a distorted picture of what romance is about. But, you know, if, if you really want love to function, you have to give someone a sense that their pains are your pains, that, that their complexities are things that you can engage with, etc. That is truly the most romantic thing. It's what keeps us going. It's what delights children. It's what delights old people. It's what delights all of us. We all long for complex and sympathetic hearing and understanding. I was quoting from your book during the week about dance. Um, oh, yes. And you say uh, it's one of the most essential activities we partake in. Uh, and I would argue, yet the majority of us don't dance. Yes. I mean, and the reason why we don't dance is we say, and it's an extraordinary sentence, I can't dance, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, because we think we can't dance, it means we shouldn't. It's the same issue with singing. I mean, I was hearing your, you know, your show, you, you like to promote, as it were, bad singing. Well, we need to do bad singing, we need to do bad dancing, we need to do bad writing, we need to do bad art, because all of these things are primary forces of expression. And so much of, if you like, mental illness and mental unwellness is emotions that have become damned in us, that, that can't get out. You know, there's rage, there's anger, there's happiness, there's a desire for connection. All these things are locked inside us and, you know, it's not good for us. So, so any of these methods of, um, of articulation, and it's, it's, it's sad that we've become such a professional society where we think, unless I can do something really well, mm. I'm not going to attempt it. Well, why? You know, um, we, we, should, we should be able to honor the idea of doing something really quite badly but with great gusto and energy. And um, anyone who's ever, you know, danced in, in, in the bathroom with a, with a hairbrush knows what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that ability to say, I'm going to do it, even though um, everyone would be shocked if they saw me. <laughs> but, but, but can we reverse this constant striving for perfection? Um, we absolutely can. I mean, you know, we, we have ideals before us of what is a so-called a good life or a normal life. And those ideals are often so painfully kind of to the right or to the left of, of reality. I mean, you know, many people suffer in relationships because they think this is not a normal relationship. You know, things are so scratchy. Things are unhappy. Well, mm. really what, what you want to say is, um, despite all of our cameras and sound recording equipment, we still cannot build a workable picture of what real life is like. Human beings are much more anxious, much more lost, much more confused, but also much more beautiful, much more intelligent, much more creative than we give ourselves credit for. So we're still, we're still learning to hold an accurate mirror to our reality. And because when we don't have that mirror, we're left thinking, why am I so strange? I mean, 
you know, let, let, let's put it bluntly, there are how many millions of us on the planet, billions of us billions. on the planet, six billion, seven, seven billion, seven. Uh, eight, yeah. coming on to eight. Yeah. Um, you know, you are not an exception. So if you feel strange inside, you're not strange. You just don't know other people well enough. And, and it's not your mm. fault. It's simply mm. that social life, you know, when you, when, you know, say, people say the proverbial, how are you doing? Um, you, of course, can never really say. <laughs> yeah. um, because, because the reality of an individual is so complex. I mean, think of your delightful Irishman, James Joyce, who put a microphone in people's heads for the first time uh, in, in Ulysses and, and heard, as it were, and represented the noise that goes on minute yeah. by minute in every mind. Well, you know, there's so much noise. The There's so much noise. That. There's so much noise in our heads. It's it's a wonder that we can manage to function at all. Although I read somewhere this week only that uh, between thirty and fifty percent of people don't have an internal monologue or dialogue. I thought everybody had it. Well, I think we we all have a, a certain amount of static, and I'm a great believer that we need periods of our lives when we can just still the external noise tune into the internal rhythms and frequencies and sort of try and make sense of it. And even asking ourselves very simple questions like, what am I anxious about now? Sounds like an odd question, but because you'd think we'd know what we were anxious about, but well, often we don't. Creating a little bit of time when you ask yourself, you know, what am I sad about? What am I excited about? What's, you know, what's on my mind? We need to, you know, as the, as the expression has it, check in on ourselves, which is mm. odd because you'd think, well, if I am me, why don't I know what's in me? Well, we don't. So we, we need to create these slightly artificial moments where we can kind of, as it were, open the door to our own minds in a way, because most of the time we're living on a three millimeter ledge on the very edge of consciousness, constantly looking forward, looking outward, uh, dealing with other people. We're not you know, really interacting with this other stranger that we've got on our doorstep, which is ourselves. So carving out those moments of introspection where we can kind of, sort of fish out of our of our mm. unconscious the kind of things that are really on our minds. School of life. Should there be more of what you're talking about in school curriculums? And have you discussed any of this with the Department of Education, say, in the UK? Well, you know, depending on how, how much of a conspiracy theorist you, you, you could be, um, there's a kind of resistance at high levels to creating a society which really properly understands itself. Because imagine <laughs> if we really understood ourselves. We might, we might just down tools and uh, go out into the fields and hug one another and yeah. you know, have too much of a nice time. Maybe, maybe. I'm not, you know, yeah. I, I veer on this one. But, but look, I, I, I think there's things to celebrate. We are nowadays a much more emotionally literate society than we ever were. We're able to discuss things with one another. You know, in relationships now, people are able to say, you know, I feel you're being defensive or, you know, I'm feeling restless or whatever. And, and you can get a hearing. And, and that is a wonderful, that is true progress that, that, you know, people now have a language, a vocabulary. I'm not saying it's perfect, but, but it is improving. And, you know, our school of life, we really communicate with people on social media, um, down kind of public channels. And, you know, maybe all of us are really being educated there rather than uh-huh. you know, young people. Young people, what they learn from School itself is a tiny part of what they're really learning from the, the kind of bigger ecosystem. But, you know, but it's, an oppor- it's, a, it's an opportunity, Alan, because you have them. You have a captive audience, you know, probably to teach them how to live, how to be human, what it is to be human. Yeah, but I mean, look, I don't know about your school days, but certainly in, in mine, I think there's almost inbuilt thing. You know, when you've got a 15-year-old 
what do they want to do with a teacher who's you know double their age and doing them you know you want you want to protest you're, you're doing something else by the way and mm. adolescence is an extremely important part of development when when really the mission is to question authority um hopefully you can steer a a, a kind of useful path through that questioning. But, mm. you know, there's, there's an inbuilt need, I think, to say, hang on a minute, how do you know that? That's part of health, I think. Yeah, because there's a theme running through the book and it's, it's a brilliant book and it's, it, it's, there's, it's so diverse. It, it's brilliant. Um, but, but as a race, we're, we're, we're quite easy to manipulate. Um, we're, we're sort of built, are we, to follow because we're social animals. But, but yet you're encouraging right. us constantly to, you know, book the trend, question the consensus? I, I mean, especially in those, in those areas where the consensus is, is making us suffer right. because, you know, it can take a very long time to question certain very um, basic things. You know, we, we hear this word about boundaries, right? That, that people have boundaries. Well, you know, many of us, it takes, a, you know, it can take most of a lifetime before you decide, you know, I, that's not what I like or you know, I don't like certain people or I don't like certain things or I don't like certain foods or whatever. It can take the better part of a life to, to, to understand what we're, what we're allowed to say no to and what we're allowed to say yes to. Knowing your own tastes is an incredibly difficult thing, particularly when we're surrounded by voices telling us what they think we need. Um, and so to kind of, you know, this is what, what people mean by, by self-understanding. It's really to sort of to, to understand your distinctiveness. And you know, one of the great things of 90-year-olds, I've been hanging out with some 90-year-olds, the great thing about them, they all say, they all say the same thing, which is, finally, I'm able to say what I'm really like. And, and you know, it's a liberation of age. Um, I know, that's, and, that, and it, that's great for them, but it's, what a wasted life then, that it takes you to right. your, yeah. So, what, right. so, so how can we get a bit of what they have then when we're younger? Well, look, I, I think, you know, one of the tricks of living is borrowing from, from ages other than your own, because every, every age has its wisdom, mm. right? And so from 90-year-olds, we, we should be getting that kind of, um, that indifference to public opinion. But from five-year-olds, we should be getting that kind of, um, uh, you know, careless, sort of a, a abandoned dance. energy yeah, to, to yeah. try out new things, yeah. to, to dance and whatever. Mm. So, and from an adolescent, we should get that questioning. And from a 30-year-old, we should get the, you know, sensibleness and all sorts of things. Mm. So dipping in and out of, uh, you know, the many human ages and all the wisdoms that, that, that each one of them offers us. We're, we're nearly coming to an end here. But finally, while we're talking about age, um, you describe in the book how we can extend our lives by introducing novelty. Yes, I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, we're obviously all obsessed with trying to live as long as possible. But, but we all know also there's this kind of strange thing about time, which is that not all moments of time are equal. You know, you can have half an hour which changes your life and half an hour which is a complete bore and you can't wait for it to be, to be over. A, a lot of what makes a life, um, you know, rich is, is how you're living it, your powers of appreciation rather than its simple chronological length. Mm. And one of the reasons why childhood seems so long is because things are new. Um, and whenever things are new, they seem longer, richer, more, 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 more complex. Time seems dense. Yes. Now, how can we do that? How can we do that, uh, you know, in adulthood? Well, make sure that you keep remembering that life is a lot stranger, a lot more exciting, a lot more complicated than you perhaps have thought. Allow the, allow the true richness of life into your kind of visual field. And life is going to seem a lot longer. You'll be a lot less worried. And you might have to eat less kale and uh, do less exercise because <laughs> it won't be about the poor number of years you're on the planet. It's about what you're seeing during those years. 
Yeah. And testimony to that is the story of the emperor and the giraffe, which you can find in the book, uh, A Therapeutic Journey, uh, Alain de Baton. Uh, uh, very interesting talk to you again, Alan. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.